Well, amen, and uh, appreciate all those songs today, and again, uh, as we celebrate the resurrection, and traditionally Christians greet each other this day with uh, the traditional phrase of, Christ is risen, and you know, how is, oh, we're going to work on that, you know, I've got to say it like you believe it, okay, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, all right, all right, amen, and uh, Thank you, by the way, to those who came out for the breakfast and uh, helped make uh, that possible and all of that, and appreciate all the efforts this morning in, uh, in that regard, and it was, it was great. So if the church smells a little bit like bacon and onions and you know home fries, all that, that's probably why. I'm probably going to smell that way for a while now in the suit and everything, but all right. We're in our Bible study in First uh, Peter, and uh, I was looking at the text, and I, I kind of said, well, this fits right along with our Easter uh, day celebration, our Resurrection Day celebration, and uh, this section of First Peter where it talks about the unseen Christ, the unseen Christ. Let's follow with me if we pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 1 of First Peter. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our God, I come before you this morning and I thank you, Lord, first and foremost for the resurrection of Christ, the power that is demonstrated in that, and the power not only to save from death and sin, but to keep us for all eternity, for all who would believe, all who would trust Him, all that would love Him. And Lord, we ask today, again, even during this time, you would prepare our hearts to receive your word with gladness. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we shall see you face to face. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You come to this uh, section here, and I'll get my notes out before I forget too much. Um, you come to this section, and remember the backdrop. We've been studying First Peter here for several weeks, and looking at this uh, little letter that he writes to the scattered church. Most of the people that, that Peter was uh, writing to were just one generation removed from the time of Christ, when Christ was here on earth, performing his miracles, walking among the people and, and preaching and, and doing all the things that he was doing. And of course, uh, ultimately going to the cross there to die for our sins and then being buried and then the third day rising again. Those disciples who during that time were, were men that were really transformed. They were radically transformed, even though they had been with Christ for three years, most of them, and they had seen the mighty works of God and all of that, they still weren't really sure about everything. It didn't really make sense until after the resurrection. And it was on that resurrection day 
that we find uh, a new, well, first of all, they were, they, the disciples were found in an upper room and they were afraid. They were worried perhaps they were next. And they had just seen their leader cru- crucified and now they were concerned that maybe their time had come as well. And yet Jesus is raised from the dead. He is seen by many people uh, as infallible witnesses. The Bible even declares up to 500 people at once during that time from the resurrection Sunday all the way to the time he ascends into heaven some 40 days later. And also by the the 12, the apostles there, uh, also by those that were on the road to Emmaus and, and others that were declared in scripture and having seen him. And yet the generation that, Paul, that Peter is writing to here in his letter, most of them had not seen Jesus. Maybe even none of them had actually seen Jesus face to face. These things had taken place prior to their conversion, prior to them believing, prior to them uh, coming into uh, the, the church in all of this. And we find um, this is the backdrop to which it is, it is happening. Remember it also, in the part of the stage that is set by history, there were great trials going on. And Christians were scattered because they were being persecuted. And, for instance, I mentioned Roman uh, Emperor Nero. He was, uh, well, he, he was a terrible man, a very evil man. And he delighted in killing people that he didn't agree with. And Christians fit the bill because they did not pledge their loyalty to the Roman emperor, which the Romans said was a deity. He was a god. And they said, no, there is but one true God. And they only would declare their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Although they had no fight with Rome, they actually were some of the best citizens. Later on, Rome would figure that out. But that this was all going on and, and Nero was killing Christians and he was doing awful, terrible atrocities to them. He was you know, killing them. He was also uh, flailing them alive, using them as a spectacle in the, the great amphitheaters and all of those things and allowing wild beasts to kill them. And some of that stuff is uh, recorded for us in church history and some of it is alluded to in scripture mostly just by saying fiery trials. They were very, very perilous times. In a time where if you were a Christian, you were always kind of looking over your shoulder, wondering when's my turn to face great persecution. Because of that, Christians had fled. They had gone to some of these far off places that that 1 Peter opens up with, you know, uh, these places like Cappadocia in northern Turkey and scattered around the Roman Empire on the fringes of it in that. But I want to hone in on a couple things here today, a few points, because in verse 8, Peter says this. Talking of Jesus, he says, Whom having not seen, you love. My friends, we may not right now in our lives be facing great persecution from outside. We certainly live in a world that's contrary to to Christ and to his teachings. But I can say this, that you're much like that early group of Christians that Peter's writing to. Because none of us were there when Christ walked here on earth. And we didn't see him face to face. But there's many of you that are sitting here today and I'm guessing that you got up on a Sunday in the morning to come out and to celebrate Jesus and doing so you're demonstrating, I hope, a love for him. And yet you've never seen him. A few weeks ago I was out and I was on a drive and I was headed over to Caribou to go to a meeting and uh, on my way, it was kind of blowing snow, as it does here about 10 months out of the year. And, uh, and, and as we were going along, I, I saw this guy hitchhiking out in the middle of no man's land, you know. And I said, well, i got to stop and pick that guy up. I mean, just brave sort that he was out there. And 
So I had an opportunity to, to drive to Caribou within probably about 20 minutes, 25 minutes there to get in to town and, and drop him off. And, and I, I began to talk to him. And of course, we talked about uh, a few little polite things, you know, the weather, of course, and things like that. But then I said, I said uh, he asked me what I did. And I said, oh, there, this, is, this, is when, <laughs> this, is what, this is when people usually jump out of the vehicle, you know. And, and I said, well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, and he goes, oh, you know, I thought, oh, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't that we had, had any other, you know, problems before that. And, and, and I said, uh, you know, I'm headed over to a meeting today. I'm doing something else with emergency management today and all that. And I kind of, kind of shifted away from the pastor thing. I didn't want to scare him away too bad or have him jump out of my vehicle and try to explain that to people. But then I, I said to him, I, I said, you know, uh, I'm a Christian, though, first. And I said, Christ has made all the difference in my life. Do you know anything about him? And you know what he said to me? He says, you know, I never saw him. And I don't think many people have ever seen him. And I really don't think it, I believe in that. He says, because I haven't seen it. Now, he was being dreadfully honest with me. I think that's really how he felt, you know. I've never seen these things. I, I don't know that there's a heaven. We had that discussion a little bit. And don't know that there's a hell because I haven't seen it. And yet, we also are sitting here today. And can I tell you this, that, that you haven't seen Christ either not face to face there's other eyes by which we see things for sure but you know what here these believers in that are being addressed by peter they had not seen christ too they hadn't been there on resurrection day when they saw the or the resurrected christ reappears they weren't there when peter when he he had denied the lord and he took off he went back fishing and remember he had just gone back to his old life and he was really in a condition of backsliding is what he was doing. And Jesus appears to him, remember on the shore, and cooks him a meal there, fish on the coals, and, and they eat a breakfast together. Wow, what a great opportunity. You know, Christians have been celebrating by eating breakfast all those years, so we're, we're trying to keep that tradition up here. But you know, Jesus recommissions Peter. And, and we know those stories. We, we hear those things. And, and by the way, back to my friend that I picked up for, you know, picked up hitchhiking. And as we were traveling, I thought, you know, I'm not going to go into the great deep, deep theological discussions for why I believe that God exists and, and you know, talk about the different arguments of that. I, I felt he really wasn't anywhere near that, didn't really want to be near that. But I shared my testimony. And I simply, in a, in a few words, but I said, I uh, came to faith in Christ when I was 18 years old after someone shared the gospel with me, and I, I shared the gospel briefly, I just said, that's the, the fact that Jesus died for me, and he took my sins at, at the cross, and that death, after he died, death did not hold him, and he rose again. And I said, I believe he's alive today because he's alive in my heart, <laughs> and I know he's alive. He lives. It's hard to argue with somebody's testimony. You, you can say, well, that's, you know, that's good. I don't believe that. But you know what? It's hard to say, you don't believe that. Because I do believe it. And you, know, you can argue that, but I, I just say, I know what's going on with me. And you know, shared my testimony with him. Anyways, we, we got it to Caribou, and I think he was rather quick to get out to go to work. He wanted to get out of there. But, but I, I say that because so often that's the way the world is. You know? They come to this whole idea of Jesus and the resurrection and the crucifixion and, and Christianity in general. And, and they, they, they're like, it just doesn't fit my worldview. And, and I can shift that back around. Guess what? Christians, we don't fit that worldview either. You know, on the other side of things, we don't fit their worldview. Some say, you know, how do you get around uh, 
uh, peg in a square hole or a, you know, a square peg in a round hole, whatever, you know, back and forth. And uh, it's not easy, but if you pound it hard enough, it'll go in and then you just paint over it, right? I mean, that's, that's what we try to do sometimes as believers and also how the world does it too. They, they can't reconcile this act that, that it's not a religion. It's, it's a relationship with Christ. It's the fact, as, as Peter puts it here, that we're born again into a, a living hope, right? We've been made alive. And he's able to take a sinner and he's able to save him and declare him righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, and save us and keep us. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And that's a wonderful truth that I cling to and I hold to, yet I've never seen Christ face to face. Oh, someday I will. And someday you will if you believe in him. You will see him face to face. You'll do that. Well, I want to look at this text here this morning and just break it down into four simple little phrases. The first one's found right there in the first part of verse 8. He says, Whom having not seen, you love. You love. Love's a strong word there. Sometimes we use that word rather loosely. And, you know, I, I say, man, I love bacon. All right. You know, that's not the same kind of love that's being talked about there. All right. Uh, if I said I love bacon the same way I love my wife. Not good. Thank you. <laughs> and some of you guys wouldn't even stop me. You'd let me go right out there and say that. We use the word love kind of loosely. But the love that is being talked about here in our text, it's that unconditional sacrificial kind of love. And in other words, I'm willing to love him even sacrificially if it costs me things. Like, it might cost me my lifestyle. It might cost me my, my pleasures of sin that so often entangle us and we really don't want Christ. When I was a teenager growing up here in the valley, I remember, you know, I had a Christian friend. He used to talk to me about this. And sometimes we'd stay up all night talking about these things. And I'd say, it's good for you. It's not good for me, you know. And quite frankly, I was happy with my life. I didn't want him coming in and interrupting it, all right? But I really wasn't happy, too. I knew down deep that I was miserable, that my life really didn't have much purpose to it, although I, I felt like I was on a good road to success and had the world before me and everything. But I said, no, there's something missing. But beyond that, I knew that my sin was plaguing me. And I thought, man, if, if my friend is right and I die in my sin, I die as an enemy of God. Why would God let me into his presence as an enemy? That bothered me. That bothered me not because I, I mean, when you're 18 and 17, 18, you think you're pretty bulletproof sometimes, you know, and drive out there extra fast and take the corner sharp and everything else. And I went into the military. I didn't care if somebody shot at me or whatever. I was bulletproof. Go do it, you know. In reality, down deep, I knew that I was one heartbeat away from eternity. And I don't care if you're 85 or you're, you're, 15 or you're five years old whatever you are only one heartbeat away from eternity and god has offered us everything he came and he died in our place he took our sins if you'll just believe on him and trust him we're going to get to that point it's next you trust him he'll take your sin and you know what you become not an enemy but a friend and a son actually the bible talks about the adoption of sons by faith he brings us into his family. Totally different relationship. Gone from being in enmity with God to being justified and to be part of his family, saved. 
That's why I know I can get to heaven someday. I know now if my heart stopped right now and it dropped, and by the way, don't do CPR on me, okay? I don't want any of you touching these lips, all right? Just so you know. <laughs> I just tell you this. Just, just leave me there. I'm going home, okay? All right. And I'll just say this. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, listen, I'm ready. I'm ready. Oh, I want to I live today. I, I got a little grandson over here. I got you know, my family, and I, I want to be around for a little while longer, you know? But I can tell you this. I do, no, I am ready. I am ready today. Are you ready? You can be. You absolutely can be. And I, I'll talk some more about that. But we love him. It's an interesting word, and yet these people had not seen him face to face. And I kind of wondered, how is it that you could fall in love with somebody and having never seen them? How could you, you know? Uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. <clears throat> Boy, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm using my wife again. You know, we met my final year at Bible school, and uh, at MBBI anyways, and we went out on a harmless date, you know. There you had to go with people with you and all that stuff, and we went out. And, and, and through the summer, after graduation, I, I went down and visited her a couple times, and I kind of said, man, you know, this is the one for me. She hadn't figured that out yet, though, for her, the other way. It took a little while. I, I don't know why. I mean, look at me. Ah, charming, you know, come on. I had more hair there. That's, that's one thing. But... You know, I went off to uh, my final year. I went to a um, Bible college in Pennsylvania at Lancaster Bible College. And I was down there. And during that semester, we were separated. I couldn't go visit her, you know, 700-some-odd miles away. And I, um, I'd call her regularly. I know because I had the phone bill to prove it. But anyways, I'd call her, and we got talking. And we, I couldn't see her, but I got to know her better. And she got to know me better. And then just a couple months after I was gone, one day, I'm getting ready to hang up the phone, and she says, I love you. Wow. I went out and bought a ring. (laughs) Okay? I got to do this. Don't let the moment pass. All right? Go. That's a true story. I did. That night, I went and bought a ring. Anyways. Okay. I, I say that. And... I don't ask her now, but anyway, things are good. I mean, we've come to love each other even more, you know? But you know what? It's often through the distance of things that you get to know somebody through their letters, through their conversation with you, through those kind of things. And I think of people like, how about um, uh, Fanny Crosby? You remember? She went blind when she was six weeks old. Six weeks old. When you're six weeks old, you don't remember much, Okay. She never had the the conscious knowledge of any sights in her life. And yet, in her course of her life, I think she wrote some 7,000 hymns and poems that were published. Now, only a few of them really, I say few, dozens of them in her hymn book that are are popular even to this day. But back there in the 1800s when all this was going on, and and she later married a man and and they had a, um, a life together, all of that. But I... But, you know, one of the things that was asked of Fanny Crosby, what do you want to do when you get to heaven? And she says, the first thing I want to do when I get to heaven is to look upon the face of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She says, I love him and I I want to see him. I want to see him. A a woman that could never see anything all her life, basically, you know, she had fallen in love with someone she didn't see. And you can do the same thing. You can love him. We have his love letter. It's right here. It's called the Bible. And we have all that he has communicated to us for the knowledge of who he is, what he's like. And oh, I could go on and on and tell you what he's like. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled. I live in a world that's anything but that. (laughs) He is the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. (laughs) Anybody here ever have someone leave them and forsake them? A broken relationship, a broken friendship, something, a broken, maybe a family. You know, those kind of things. Our world's filled with that kind of brokenness. But Jesus will never let you down. Ever. He's the one who is full of truth, grace and truth. I like that because sometimes we're guilty of this. We speak the truth, but we don't speak it with grace and we don't speak it with love. He always gives us the truth in grace and love, but it's the truth. He's the one who is the controller and upholder of all things because he's eternal. He didn't become uh, the son of God. He always has been the son of God, the eternal son. That's why when you come to John's gospel, he's presented as, as God the son, the deity of Christ. That's important because the only one that could save us from our sins, no man could do it, no woman could do it, not even the best of them because we all fall short of his glory. We've all sinned and fall short. Only God himself could come and do that. Only God himself could take the wrath of God, the punishment of God, and sustain that. And he did so at the cross. Only God. He's he's more than just another man or a religious leader or someone to follow because he had a few moral teachings, those kind of things. He's God the Son. That's important to understand. That's part of what we call Orthodox Christian beliefs, those things that the apostles passed on to us. We love him. Secondly, we trust him. Look at the second part of that. He says, though now you do not see him, yet believing. Yet believing. The word there for believe means to trust. It is very closely connected with the idea of faith. When we talk about faith, I, I, I try to keep things as simple as possible. Uh, I'm a simple person. And I can just say this, that you are sitting in your chair today by faith. All right? And sometimes the chair won't hold you up. I, we know that happens. But I can tell you this. But you trusted that chair. You sat down in it. And you're trusting it even now. Because nobody jumped right up when I said that. And I can tell you this. We, we take those kind of trust moves all the time. We trust that things are going to work. Or they're going to do it. Because of their reliable history before. Or our, our, our history with them. Or because someone told us that. Or whatever. Now things on this earth break down. And they don't always hold us And these people fail us. But Christ will never do so. When you trust him, believing on him, that's what the word means to trust him, to put your full weight on him. You know what? You're saying, Lord, I I need you for my eternity and my existence with you. I need you to save me from my sin. That's what a savior is. It's not me doing 1% and him doing 99%. It's him doing 100%. And that's important because the Bible says by faith you are saved, all right? By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, right? It is not of works, lest any man should boast. If I could even uh, uh, save myself with just a little measure of goodness or something like that, then I could brag for all eternity, I did my part. But you know what? The Bible declares that we can't do our part We are desperate and we are in need of a Savior. And that's why when Peter writes to these believers that are scattered, he says this, though now you do not see him, yet you believe, you trust. We're no different in this age. We also trust. We're a few more generations removed 
from the apostles and from Christ, but he's the still the reliable Savior some 2,000 years on. Think of that because in John's gospel, remember in John, um, well, I'll move on here. This is not the word, reference, this one. Isaiah 53, 2. Talks about this Jesus who we've not seen, nor have we, uh, because of that, we still trust him, we believe in him. And there's some questions I have about that. If you can't see him, and yet you can still trust him, you know, maybe, what does he look like? And what is he like? And I, I explained some of that, but you know, even we have images in our mind of what Jesus may have looked like, right? Most of it's because we saw some picture hanging on a wall somewhere or in a, in a movie or something like that. And the reality is I think he's going to look entirely different than we ever pictured in our own mind. Someday we'll be before him. We do know what the Bible says of him in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, talking about the coming Christ, the Messiah. says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, and he has no form or comeliness. Old English word that's brought in there. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The ESV, I like this version and this translation here, because listen to what it says. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. You know what it's saying there of Jesus? There was nothing outward about his presence while he was here on earth that drew people to him. He didn't have a, you know, majesty in the sense, you know, when, when people move around, I don't care if they're politicians, religious leaders, whatever, they go around and they've got to have the sirens blowing and they've got to have, you know, the blue lights on and they've got to have this and that and the trumpet sounding and the red carpet and, and we say, wow, look at that. Not Jesus. He was very average looking in his fleshly appearance. If Jesus somehow moved what, you know, he decided that he would come in time and he would visit our time. It was our time. And he was walking out here on Main Street in Madawaska. You'd probably drive by him and say, oh, another stranger in town. Must live in an apartment nearby or home or something. Uh, And we wouldn't give him much thought. Just keep going. The outward did not draw people. It was what he was on the inward. He was God veiled in flesh. Very average is what Isaiah says of him. And that he had no outward beauty that we would just desire him for his beauty. Today we live in a world of celebrities. And if a celebrity would run for whatever, you know, office, people would vote for him just because they they look good, they wear the right clothes, they might have awful, terrible management skills and terrible um, uh, personalities and all kinds of things, but they would vote for him because they're a celebrity. And that's, that's the way we are. But that's not why Christ came. We didn't need another celebrity. We didn't need a savior. And he was the real deal. In John's gospel, you remember the day after the resurrection or as the resurrection had occurred and Jesus appeared to his disciples and there was was one that was missing. His name was Thomas, often called Doubting Thomas. Well, Doubting Thomas isn't too far from Doubting Jack, okay? We, We think a lot alike. And I, I like this. It says in verse 28 of John 20, Thomas answered and said to him, this is after Jesus showed his nail prints and his, his pierced side. Because Thomas said, except I see those things, I won't believe. I won't trust. And look what he says, my Lord and my God. Now he wasn't just using that loose phrase that people use all the time saying, my God. He was saying, you're my God. 
He made that very clear declaration in that whole process. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And look at this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That was yet future. He's referring to the church because the generation to follow would not see Jesus. They would believe him, though. They would have the writings of Peter and Paul and Luke and the Old Testament prophets. And they would have all those things and they would believe. I often wonder, what would it be like if we could go back in time and see some aspect of Christ? Maybe just one day with him while he walked here on earth. Would it change our faith? Would it make us more vibrant in our faith? Would it do that? I don't know. I I don't know. I just know this, that I only can read his love letter to me. And the historical books that are laid out in front of me. And every time I read them, I get a little closer to him. And I desire to know him better. We trust him. We trust him. You know, somebody made this statement. They said, no apostles ever remembered Jesus. Now, that's an interesting statement. And what he meant by remembered is not to think of them. But they didn't erect a monument to them, to him. And that's true. When you think of Peter and Paul and John and Andrew and you go right down through the whole list of them, nowhere did you find in church history or in the Bible that they went and erected a monument like a gravestone somewhere and said, this is to remember Jesus. You know why? Because they believed he was alive. Because they had seen him. And their lives demonstrated that. We're not like that in our world here in the sense that, you see, we're surrounded by death all the time. When you drive through the valley here, you can't help but see all the cemeteries. Generation after generation after generation of death. You say, is there hope? Yeah, there is. There's hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond the grave because there's an empty grave. That grave in Jerusalem that is empty and proves that our Savior lives. And he didn't just, you know, have an empty grave, but he showed himself to those followers. So much so that if you were to bring it into a court of law today, the volume of evidence is such that they would have to rule in favor of the resurrection. There's far more evidence of the resurrection of Christ and those that testified of those things than most would ever have in any court case that would, would land on, before a judge. And yet people dismiss it like it's a myth, a ter- you know, a fable of some sort. Oh no, my friends. He's hope beyond the grave. And we need to know that. We need, we need Him. And I think of that because we're constantly erecting monuments to people so that we don't forget them. The great thing about Christ is you don't have to erect a monument because if you know Him, He's with you. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. Oh, that's a wonderful truth. Third thing found there also in the last part of that verse of 1 Peter 1, 8. He says this, You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I like what the King James puts it, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Have you ever been in a moment where you just, you're so elated you can't find the words? You just say, woohoo, right? You go buy a ring or something, I don't know. (laughs) And and again, to get a word in otherwise, you know, elsewise, that's it. But I just say this, that there are times where there's joy inexpressible and Peter writes that because 
When Christ lives in you and he's alive, my friends, he's alive today, it is, he gives you joy that's so deep in your heart that I'll tell you, you can't express it. No pen could ever write all the praises that are due him. The Apostle John, as he wrote his gospel according to John, he ends it there talking about the works of Christ. And he says, I suppose if all the works of Christ were written in a book, on a scroll, literally is in the Greek, he says, the world, and the word he uses, it's cosmos, that's, that's the universe. The universe could not contain the scroll. Wow. You know what that means is that the infinite, eternal God could not even be bound by his creation if you were to write everything that to do about him. I'll tell you something, heaven's not going to be a boring place. We're going to learn of him. We're going to know things of him. We'll forever learn of someone who's infinite and we'll never have to go back and have something repeated because we run out of things that's just i don't know that blow your mind don't think too deep but listen joy inexpressible i think of that because so often have you ever been to a, a, some big event in your life or something happening and you're kind of glued to how this is going to turn out you wonder how it's going to turn out i was reminded of that uh, coming up here in april uh, april 11th is the anniversary of the Apollo 13 moon mission that took off in 1970 on April 11th. And, of course, there was a movie done of that and uh, many books written of that. And it's one of my favorite stories, a real-life event that took place with the U.S. space program. And on April 11th, the Apollo 13 mission, the seventh named Apollo mission, took off and with three astronauts aboard, and they were headed to the moon. And that, that was the plan. They had trained for years for this. Um, they headed out. And just two days into their travel to the moon, uh, they went through a routine procedure of stirring oxygen in an oxygen tank. And when they turned the pump on, there was an explosion. And the uh, support module that, that was on, it, there was an explosion. And they vented a whole bunch of oxygen that was reserved for their power and their life support and everything else went off into space. The gravity of the whole situation began to unfold when they realized that they did not have, uh, at, at current consumption rates, enough power left on the ship to be able to survive the journey around the moon, because they, they weren't going to land now, and get back to Earth. And they scrambled for the next uh, four days, trying to keep these astronauts alive by all kinds of things that were going on. Not only had they lost power that was required to heat the vehicles they were on, Things fell below freezing rather rapidly. They lost the ability to filter carbon dioxide out of the air, so they had to come up with a device that they made there to scrub more carbon dioxide out of the cabin atmosphere. They came to a point where they had to shut down their computer that basically kept everything you know, pointed in the right direction and had to shut it down to make sure that they could... Uh, have enough power left for the re-entry process, which required very specific coordinates to get them into the atmosphere and to get them landed back on Earth safely. And to do it, it was absolutely phenomenal, all the things that took place. They came down to the final moments, and as that uh, command module began to enter into the Earth's atmosphere, there was a, a time element of about three minutes that was estimated where they would have a radio blackout. 
And the people in Houston, the controllers in Houston, Texas, would not be able to communicate with the astronauts until they came out of that radio blackout at about three minutes, and then they would know that they would have survived the reentry process. They actually, at this point, did not know whether or not they had enough power left on board, even through calculations and everything else, to be able to jettison the parachutes that were required at the last moment to get this thing landed in the ocean safely at about 20 miles an hour instead of 300 miles an hour. All this was going on. The whole world clung to their, their TVs and radios and their, their, these controllers in Houston. They all were sitting there. And as live over the airways, the last radio transmission came in from those Apollo astronauts. And three minutes went by. And everybody had said, after three minutes, we'll know if they survive. Nothing. Three minutes and 30 seconds. Nothing. Four minutes. Nothing. Four minutes and 27 seconds. All of a sudden, the radio came back to life. And those astronauts confirmed that they had survived and that their chutes had opened. And the people at Houston, uh, they, they were all still you know, like this, making sure they landed. Because they didn't even know if, what was going to happen there. But sure enough, as soon as it was confirmed that the Apollo 13 capsule had landed safely in the ocean and the astronauts were in the process of getting picked up, they were joyful. They couldn't say anything. They just hollered out and screamed, and it became a, a deafening roar there at, at uh, the control center in Houston. And I thought of that because, you know, though that's just an earthly example of times where we kind of sit on the edge of our seat wondering how this is going to turn out, I want you to put yourself back in the place of those early Christians and, and back up even to the days of the apostles and Peter particularly. Christ has been crucified. He said on the third day he would rise again, but, but now he's dead. The tomb has been sealed and, and there's just no way. I mean, how can this happen? No one just rises from the dead. And now it's the third day. It's the third day and... And some men went to the tomb and, and they didn't find his body there. And the women said he wasn't there also. And there's a lot of confusion going on. Did they steal the body of Jesus? What happens? And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. And he says, joy inexpressible. You can't say anything sometimes when it comes to that. My friends, do you know the Lord? Do you know him? You know why? Because last point, not only we are filled with joy, but he fills us with hope. He fills us with hope. He says in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, that's the trust aspect, the salvation of your souls. If you'll trust Him, you receive something. It's a free gift. He's paid the price of it. He paid it with His own lifeblood, and He secured it with His resurrection and His salvation. And it's what you need. It's what I need. I'm thankful for that. I end with one last illustration. I know my time's getting away. But, you know, I wonder, how do you live as a pilgrim and a stranger in a world that's contrary to Christians and contrary to Christ? And it seems like we're constantly swimming upstream against culture and everything else. And, and yet, you can love the Lord. You can trust the Lord. And that someday we're going to meet Him face to face. Our days may be long here. They may be short. But in the blink of eternity, it's nothing. That's it. Back in 1997, there was a young lady named Karen Watson of Bakersfield, California. She accepted Christ as her Savior. She, she received that gift of salvation that Peter's talking about here. This came after an intense 
period of, of grief in her life. See, she had had a boyfriend that she was engaged to, and he died shortly after that. Her father died. Her grandmother died, all within two-year span. Seems like death just visited her, one kind of punch after another. After coming to Christ, she joined her local church, and she went on some short-term missions trips. She went twice to El, El Salvador, once to Kosovo, once to Macedonia, and also Greece. Eventually, she felt God calling her into full-time service, and so she resigned her job as a, a, a detention officer at a sheriff's department in Bakersfield, and she sold her car and her possessions, her house. She joined the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptists. She packed up all her worldly possessions in a single duffel bag. And because she was a natural leader, she was asked to coordinate refugee work in Jordan during the war in Iraq. Soon after major combat ended, she was assigned to Iraq itself. Though she was fully aware of the dangers, she did not hesitate to accept the call. On March 15th of 2004, she and four other missionaries were in the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. And when they were attacked in an ambush shooting, the assailants fired automatic weapons and rocket-powered grenades. Four of the missionaries died. One was critically injured, and Karen Watson, 38, was among the dead. Before she went to Iraq, about a year before this, she had written a handwritten letter and addressed it to her pastor, sealed it up, and it was to be only opened in the event of her death. The letter was dated March 7, 2003. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart was for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to Him. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected, His glory was my reward, His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working among my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. The missionary heart care more than some think is wise risk more than some think is safe, dream more than some think is practical, expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too and my church family in his care. Salam, Karen. At the funeral, Pastor Roger Spradlin asked this question. He says, does it pay to serve God when kindness is greeted by hail of bullets? Then he gave the answer. It pays if you value the attention of God more than the approval of men. It pays if you value others more than yourself, he said. If we were to ask Karen, she would say, oh yes. The world doesn't understand the Karen Watsons. They don't always understand 
any Christians. They don't understand Christ. But you can understand him. The sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is for a purpose, as for his glory, but to bring unto himself people who are in need of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, again, thankful that you are alive, alive forevermore. And Lord, I pray even now that if there's people here today that are strangers to you, that they would make business with you today, would trust you, casting their sin upon you, and you are promised to forgive and to cleanse all sin, all unrighteousness, and to save us if we'll just trust you. We claim that this morning. I pray to that end even here. And Lord, we thank you for our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we live for him today. In his name we pray. Amen.